0: RPC Radio. Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Money Covered, a podcast from RPC aimed at those dealing with complaints and claims in the financial services sector and risk managers within that sector. My name is Rachel Healy. I am one of the co hosts on this podcast and will be talking to some guests about key developments in the financial services area over the last month. The podcast will discuss topical issues of relevance to those dealing with complaints and claims against FCA regulated entities, such as IFAs, asset managers, SIPs, and brokers, TPR regulated entities, including pension trustees, as well as issues for offshore professionals and accountants. With a lot of ground to cover, i welcome our guests to the podcast today welcome to ben McCarty and tom Challen as our guests on the podcast today 22nd of february 2022 in our second podcast of 2022 while the world waits to see if russia invades the ukraine having entered parts of the country this morning both ben and tom are new to the podcast so welcome to both of you today today we're going to focus on sip providers following a recent financial ombudsman service decision involving the SIP provider Rowan Moore and a recent report from the Financial Reporting Council on the state of the audit market. But before turning to Ben and Tom, it's worth briefly covering some other topics as particular highlights for listeners during February 2022. We saw a stream of headlines relating to the FCA's proposed consultation into defined benefit transfer advice and the British Steel Pension Scheme, with rumours that the proposed consumer reader scheme will broadly follow that previously adopted for Arch Crew. And a meeting took place between the FCA and senior industry stakeholders, including compliance staff, consumers, and senior members of the advice profession, understood to have taken place also this month. There is also an FCA consultation on proposed guidance for firms seeking to limit their liabilities with the FCA stating that firms must provide the best possible outcome for customers seeking redress, including making funds available to meet redress claimed by customers, and that there will be repercussions for those limiting liability, which could, for example, result in FCA taking enforcement action. So first of all, we turn to Tom, who's going to pick up the Fos decision in Roamore, as I mentioned, Roamore, Um, is the SIP provider subject to this decision. The decision involves the due diligence obligations of SIP providers and has received quite a lot of attention in the industry press. SIP provider due diligence is a topic we covered last year, um, twice in fact, in episode one following the Court of Appeal decision in Adams and Carey with Ash Daniels, and in episode seven of the podcast with Shorter Giddings taking us through a pension ombudsman decision, which coincidentally also involved Rowan Moore. In the Pension Ombudsman decision, the complaint was not upheld. And a spoiler alert here, the FOS did uphold the complaint against Wormore. and that's the decision we're going to deal with now. So Tom, there's quite a lot to get through with the Wurrimore decision, but can you
2: briefly just remind listeners what a SIP is? Thanks, Rachel. A SIP, or Self-Invested Personal Pension... Is a pension that allows the customer to determine what kinds of investments they want to make in their pension and provides them with a tax free wrapper for those investments. They're usually administered by one regulated company and held in a bare trust by a different unregulated trustee entity. A SIP is regulated by the now FCA and has been since April 2007.
1: So, as I mentioned, we have covered SIP pro- providers before in two previous podcasts. Um, One of the key issues we discussed and an ongoing area of debate in the industry is what is a SIP provider's duty of so-called due diligence, including what does it mean in practice, what is the impact of various FSA, and what that means for the contractual terms that the SIP provider actually agrees with its members. Further, what does it mean for SIP provider due diligence, both in terms of the investment and in terms of the introducer, and also what kind of ongoing due diligence obligations to SIP providers have. As this is a FOS decision, Tom, we probably should start by reminding listeners about the jurisdiction of FOS and the judicial review in Bartley-Burke, giving it is the High Court decision in that case that the FOS often turns to when it looks
2: at SIP provider complaints. So first, Tom, what is the jurisdiction of FOS? So the FOS handles complaints against entities which are broadly regulated by the FCA. The crucial factor in dealing with FOS is that it considers what is fair and reasonable rather than applying a slightly stricter legal standard, such as the Pensions Ombudsman does, for example.
1: As I said, Bartley-Burke is the decision many point to when considering what approach FOS may take to a complaint involving a SIP provider and what due diligence they conducted on an investment. So Tom, what happened in
2: Bartley-Burke? Miss Charlton invested in the green oil scheme in Cambodia called sustainable agro energy. He transferred his personal pension to the Barclay Burke SIP in order to facilitate that investment. The sustainable agro energy scheme turned out to be a fraud. Miss Charlton's investment collapsed. He complained to Foz and said the Barclay Burke should have prevented him from investing in the scheme. The FOS concluded that Barclay-Burke did not carry out sufficient due diligence on the sustainable agro-energy scheme, and if they had, they would not have allowed the investment into their SIP.
1: So Barclay-Burke were unhappy with the decision and judicially reviewed it. So what did the court decide and what do many consider as a result to be the key due diligence issues for SIP providers off the back of the High Court's decision?
2: Well, the court essentially upheld the false decision. It's important to remember here that this was a judicial review, so the court was considering whether the decision was one a reasonably competent ombudsman could reach, and the court essentially said that it was. Barclay Burke intended to pursue an appeal to the Court of Appeal, and permission had been granted, but unfortunately, they entered into administration before this could be heard. What was interesting about the judicial review? with a factor set out of paragraph 35 of the High Court judgment, which mirrored exactly what FOS had articulated as being the due diligence obligations of SIP providers. Essentially, they said that Barclay-Burke should have, one, identified sustainable agro as a high-risk speculative and non-standard investment. So it should have carried out sufficient due diligence on it. Two, considered whether sustainable agro was actually appropriate for a pension scheme in the first place. Three, ensured that the investment was genuine and not a scam or linked to fraudulent activity. Four, independently verified, the sustainable agro's assets were real and secure and that the investment actually operated as it was claimed. Five, ensured that the investment could be independently valued, both at point of purchase and subsequently, and finally ensured that Miss Charlton's Sip couldn't become a vehicle for a high-risk inspected investment that wasn't a secure asset and could be a scam. So that's essentially a summary of all of the points in that final one.
1: Thank you for setting out the background there, Tom. So perhaps it's time now to turn to the Rowanmore decision itself. So what were the facts in Rowanmore?
2: So CIB Life and Pension Limited, or CIB, had been making referrals into the Rowanmore SIP these referrals were from investments into the resort group, which was essentially an investment into property in Cape Verde. CRB was a regulated financial advisor and had the requisite permissions to advise on the investment in the resort group and the Rowanmore SIP itself. In 2009, Moore identified a concern that CRB were operating on an execution only basis, specifically that it was advising on the transfer into the Rowan Moore SIP, but not advising on the investment into the resort group itself. Rowan asked CIB to provide advice on the underlying investment, and the CIB confirmed that they would do so. Now we come to Mr. T. Mr. T decided to invest in the resort group following a presentation that he attended in 2011. In July 2011, Mr. T applied to Rowan Moore to open SIP. Later signed declaration that he understood the risks and did not wish to seek independent legal advice on that investment. In 2013, Rowan Moore again sought confirmation from CIB on whether or not advice was being provided on the underlying investment, and CIB again confirmed that they were doing so. At that point, or slightly later on, the investment then collapsed and referrals from CIB were halted. And they were placed into administration in May 2015.
1: So what did
2: Mr T allege Rowan Moore had done wrong? Essentially Mr T alleged that Rowan Moore failed to carry out due diligence on the referrals they were receiving from CERB and that they should have considered the suitability of the resort group investments. It was also asserted that Rowan Moore had failed to make sure that Mr T was fully advised on his investment and that they should, or Rowan Moore, should have stopped working with CB prior to Mr. T's investment.
1: So we gave everyone a spoiler alert at the start to say that FOS upheld the complaint against Mr. T. But in your view, how did and why did the FOS come to that decision?
2: Well, the FOS decided that there was a lack of due diligence in COB and its business model. Rowan Moore should have identified large volumes of high-risk investments introduced by CB. As an anomaly. There was a failure to check. Mr. T had been fully advised and to request a suitability report. And it was unreasonable to rely on the assurances provided by COB that it was actually providing advice on the underlying SIP investment when the issue was first raised with them in 2009. This is because there were a number of red flags which should have been identified by Rowan Moore. SIP would only assure them that they were providing advice verbally, and in fact, When that confirmation was requested, they moved on to ask about execution only business in the same call, which I think most people would agree is pretty suspicious. COB was also a a pretty small firm and the FOS said it was quite obvious that if they were referring such a high volume of business, a question should have been raised as to how they were practically advising so many people on the underlying investment. Um, And finally, there were various other Red flags raised. CIB had been altering application forms into the CIP and were making misleading statements in their promotional material. And all of those factors combined really should have led Rome to question its relationship with CB further in the view of the FOS. It wasn't enough in the FOSS mind to just check the regulatory permissions of CRB and rely solely on those much wider ranging investigations into cb's conduct and business model should have been carried out particularly given that ronald found out in 2009 about CRB's business model i.e that they weren't actually advising on the underlying sip investment Fos, in a slightly separate point also expressly stated that rejecting an application to open a SIP or refusing to allow an investment product into the SIP was not considered an investment advice.
1: So Rumor has captured quite a lot of press attention in respect of two issues, really. First of all, it is arguably the first SIP decision before fours involving ongoing due diligence obligations. It's not just what you do when you first take an investment or money from um, a particular referrer of business, but what you have to do on an ongoing basis. And then secondly, what the position is in relation to a regulated advisor, because CIB here was regulated, notably by the FCA, albeit, as Tom just mentioned, relying on that regulatory permission on the facts of this case, the force considered wasn't quite enough. So I asked Shauna this question last time around, Tom. So what are your thoughts on where the Rural Moor decision leaves SIP providers? I think...
2: Fundamentally, first of all, Rowan Moore is a reminder of the risk that SIP providers have of effectively being left holding the baby when other regulated professionals don't do their jobs properly. SIP providers are unable to provide financial advice, but seemingly before the FOS are expected to police the advice given to their customers by regulated advisors. A lot of that is old ground, uh, considering a lot of the issues that have been discussed on the podcast in the past. But the novelty of Romo, as you've identified, is the expectation that the due diligence obligation is ongoing, and potentially a bit more extensive than we previously thought. It doesn't stop with just the first investment into the product, or the agreement to take a customer on from a particular thrower, it effectively creates an obligation to monitor the investment and the referral decision raises several unanswered questions as well such as what is a a refusal to allow investment into the scheme if it isn't advice and why does the decision to transfer a personal pension which would have been done before the application to the sip have anything to do with the sip when they didn't advise the customer to obtain their funds by transferring their pension i think as a a sort of future point to think about if SIP providers start declining to place investments into their schemes, which seems likely given the spate of these decisions they're likely going to have to sort of tighten up a little bit, then what's going to start happening, I think, is that customers will bring claims against SIP providers where they have refused speculative and high risk investments, but those investments have been successful unlike what's happened in Roanmore, And it has the potential to place SIP providers between a rock and a hard place, essentially.
1: That's an interesting point to finish on there, Tom, as to whether or not SIP providers may face claims from the opposite direction, failure to um, comply with instructions to invest and potentially the loss of investment returns as a result when over the last 10 years, they've been facing complaints and claims about making investments that people are then unhappy with. So I have to wait and see if the tides now, now turn so ben we now turn to you to discuss the financial reporting council's report the audit committee chair's views on and approach to audit quality an important read for those in the audit sector given its commentary around audit audits themselves and also what audit committee chairs look for in their audit team so ben first of all can you just let listeners know and outline what an audit is and perhaps most importantly What is its purpose?
0: Hi, Rachel. Uh, Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, Put simply, an audit is an examination of the financial reports of an organisation presented in an annual report by someone independent of that particular organisation. Its purpose is to ensure that accounts reflect the company's underlying performance. A company is legally required to have an audit if they tick two of the following boxes. Firstly, if their turnover exceeds 10.2 million, or if they have total assets greater than 5.1 million, or they have more than 50 employees. It's worth noting that some companies, articles, or shareholders will require an audit regardless. And if a company is part of a group which fulfills the necessary criteria, but that specific company does not, the audit is still required. The objective of an audit is to form an independent opinion of the financial statements of the audit entity. The opinion includes whether the financial statements show a true and fair view and has been made in compliance with the appropriate accounting standards. It is also worth noting that auditors should also review performance indicators that go beyond the financial outcomes and consider factors on that respective industry rather than a purely financial review.
1: So Ben, the report seeks views from audit committee chairs. So for listeners, what is an audit committee? What is its role? And separately, what is the role of the chair?
0: An audit committee is a subgroup of a company's board of directors responsible for the oversight of the financial reporting and disclosure process. The committee is required to be aware of the processes and internal controls of that specific organisation. They must coordinate with auditors, internal and external, to ensure compliance of laws and regulations are adhered to. The role of the committee chair is clearly heavily linked with that of the committee, and to be effective in their roles, both the committee and chair will have to work together. The chair will be responsible for ensuring that the committee is comprised of a mix of members with relevant experience, skills and backgrounds. The chair will also be required to identify the strengths of the committee members and ensure that work is delegated appropriately, depending on various expertise. A chair is said to be required to be both experienced and have effective professional relationships to be successful within the role.
1: So having set out that useful background there, Ben, why does the FRC commission this report? What's its aim and who contributes to it?
0: So its aim was to gain insight into the views of audit committee chairs or ACC's on the approach to audit quality through in-depth interviews, the findings of which could be compared and contrasted with the 2020 research. The interviews explored a number of things, defining a good quality and poor quality audit, planning and executing an audit, including gathering evidence and communication with auditors, reporting on audit quality, the audit tender process, changes in the audit sector, including familiarity with audit quality indicators, or AQIs, and the future of the FRC and its transformation into the Audit Reporting and Governance Authority, or ARGA. The research was conducted by YouGov, in this instance conducting 50 of the in-depth interviews with ACCs.
1: So what did the report find when it comes to auditors conducting a so-called good quality audit?
0: So the report noted that often interview discussions did not use the term quality and instead terms such as effectiveness and robustness were used as it more accurately aligns with the criteria used to assess auditors. Proper planning was a common crucial feature for a good quality audit. Being proactive in audit is seen as key to ensure unforeseen issues are kept to a minimum. The report also found that much of the same as the previous year's findings, the crucial role of the lead audit partner is essential. The partner is seen as the individual responsible for driving the quality of the audit. Often success in this area requires an in-depth understanding of the business being audited, the ability to identify key risks, clear communication, and understanding the sector that business is within, and the key themes relevant to that sector. A key theme emerging from the interviews was that late surprises can have considerable impact on perceptions of audit quality, particularly when considering the role of the pandemic on audits. However, it was noted that remote working and audit has widely operated far smoother than anticipated. It was further noted that most ACC's were unable to differentiate between good service, for example communication and deadline adherence, and audit quality, such as example planning and challenge. The FRC has stated alongside the published research the need to promote a more consistent approach to audit quality.
1: As you mentioned, Ben, one of the areas the report covers is the selection process for an auditor, including the tender process. And interestingly, um, a majority of audit committee chairs responding to the report had undertaken an audit tender within the last five years, with on average most businesses inviting three to five firms to bid. The report also refers to some firms being frustrated by limited choice in the audit market, but also expressing views that joint audits would be impractical. What reasons were cited for the impracticalities with a joint audit? What wider comments were made by the ACCs around competitiveness in the audit market?
0: The overall viewpoint from the report from ACC's was a negative outlook towards joint audits, described by some as being impractical for a number of reasons. Firstly, the process of joint audit is seen by some to strip audit firms of their autonomy and their ability to exercise their own judgement. There is also an issue with avoiding conflicts of interest to consider in any potential joint audit. The other significant reason is the cost implications of a joint audit. Given tender processes are often 12 to 18 months in advance of that audit, the time-consuming task would likely be seen as increasing costs should a joint audit be chosen the topic of joint audits is one that has been addressed by the competitions and markets authority or cma market study of 2019 which recommends mandatory joint audits to address competition issues which are reportedly adversely affecting audit quality on the whole the competitiveness in the audit market is a topic which has generated significant traction for a period of time now and is also the topic of discussion in the CMA's market study. Listeners will be familiar with the term Big Four when discussing the market of audit firms, these being PwC, Deloitte, EY and KPMG. In the 350 listed businesses on the FTSE, 97% of audits are, handed, are handled by the Big Four firms. The upcoming Audit Reporting and Governance Authority or ARG, has an objective, amongst others, of dealing with audit quality and competition. The regulator will have the power to take enforcement action to address anti-competitive practices and any abuse of dominant positions within the audit market. Despite these proposals, the report confirms a pessimism about the prospects of a market opening up to firms outside the Big Four, with critics claiming these steps should have occurred when it was the Big Seven or Big Eight. Given the Big Four's substantial resources and capacity to deal with large-scale audits and the ever-increasing regulations, critical ACC's do not foresee a market which will allow smaller firms to reduce the dominance of the big four.
1: So quite pessimistic there in terms of audit competitiveness. The report also asked questions of ACC's around the monitoring of auditors and the FRC itself. What comments were made there?
0: Yes, indeed. The report comments on a, a mixture of responses around what proportionate monitoring of auditors and the FRC looks like with criticism that the ever-increasing rules and regulations are making audits significantly more expensive, complex and serving as tick-box exercise which fails to identify so-called bad apples. One ACC highlighted that the ever-increasing bureaucracy and anti-competition faced means everything requires someone looking over their shoulder. Further criticism is levied with, with the increasing rules having led to audits being consumed by the technical aspects of the audit, with failure to consider the overall bigger picture. A theme of the comments made was that there was a need for a degree of subjectivity, flexibility and judgment to apply to the audit process. There was more of a mixed response to the role of the FRC. Some responses said that the increase in rules has hampered innovation and progress. The report also commented on the FRC's need to identify issues in a more preventative rather than reactive way. Calls for more listening from the FRC and a cooperative research towards is something ACC's have made clear in their response in order to achieve the desired outcome for all parties.
1: As you also mentioned earlier, Ben, questions were asked of the audit committee chairs around AQIs or audit quality indicators, bit of a tongue twister for a podcast. Can you outline what these are, um, how they apply and what the AQIs broadly say?
0: Yes, uh, Audit Quality Indicators, or AQIs, are quantitative and qualitative measures of external audit quality. They indicate a firm's historical, current or future ability to perform high quality audits, as well as providing insights into those audits. They are similar to Key Performance Indicators or KPIs. The distinguishing characteristic of an AQI is that they are viewed through a quality lens to either assess audit quality or determine actions that will improve audit quality. They can also be used to identify previous failings and provide remedial actions that can be undertaken. The FRC's findings mirrored the 2020 research, which suggests that most ACC's had an awareness of AQIs, but did not mention using them regularly compared to other criteria and reports, such as transparency reports. The FRC recommends audit committees make use of AQIs when appointing their auditor and to assess quality on an ongoing basis. However, the research flags that audit quality reviews and transparency reports were not used by more than a small proportion of the sample group. They were described by several chairs as not being specific and often too generalised. The report found requests for them to be more specific and relevant for respective sectors to increase their effectiveness.
1: The ICAEW has reacted to this report. Can you first outline for listeners new to the area what and who are ICAEW?
0: Of course, for those unaware, the ICAEW stands for the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. It is a professional membership organisation that promotes, develops and supports chartered accountants and students across the world. It also regulates the firms and students under their membership, ensuring they maintain the highest standards of professional competency and conduct.
1: So as you say, the ICAW is effectively a regulator of the audit profession. Um, What did they say in response to this report then?
0: The responses question the quality of audits, highlighting what it describes as worrying findings at a time of intense scrutiny on the audit profession, following a number of high profile corporate collapses and widespread criticism. The main concern the ICAEW flag is that some ACCs are still struggling to distinguish between a good quality audit and a good quality of service from an auditor. The Institute describes the research as flagging the need for more focus on AQIs amongst all stakeholders. The response also states that questions could be raised about auditor independence, given the ACC's increasing focus on the added value an audit firm can bring to the business over and above financial statement assurance. The ICAEW published an essay on audit quality back in April, 2021, to aid its firms in increasing quality following the government's consultation paper on changes to the audit system. And it is also developing a range of resources to provide practical assistance to member firms on audit quality.
1: So as you said there, Ben, there's a lot of scrutiny on the audit profession at the moment, and a lot of press in particular about the future of audit. Can you just outline for listeners what's coming down the track for the audit profession?
0: Certainly. Uh, There's been a lot of press regarding the future of audit, most notably, as some listeners will be aware, and an area we have touched upon, the FRC announcing back in April 2018 its strategy to restore trust in audit and corporate governance. The most significant part of this strategy will be the creation of ARGA, Audit, Reporting and Governance Authority, which will replace the FRC. This change is expected to be fully implemented by April next year, with further reforms to follow. Part of the bid to restore trust will be to give ARGA greater oversight and stronger powers to enforce standards and break up the dominance of the big four audit firms. The FRC has reiterated that its strategy reflects its continued commitment to serve public interest while it transitions to ARGA. The government proposes giving the regulator powers to investigate and establish if a director has breached the relevant requirements and impose relevant sanctions. The standard of proof of the balance of probabilities would apply when assessing the individual circumstances of a breach. Sanctions are proposed to include reprimands, fines, orders to take action and even prohibitions from acting as a director, a development no doubt the directors and officers market will be watching out for. The change comes off the heels of high profile accounting irregularities in widely reported cases such as Carillion patisserie Valerie and bhs. As part of the government ordered review of the current frc the kingman review named as it was led by legal and general chairman Sir john kingman. recommended the introduction of the new regulator, which will be accountable to Parliament for more effective oversight and address the concentration of the market. This review will remain relevant in the future of audits until ARGA is established and the new regulations are implemented. Audit, given its nature, has often been described as an ever-evolving area. And given the pressure following the high-profile corporate failures, there is still clearly work to do to improve audits. The FRC's annual audit quality inspection results for 2020-2021 showed that 29% of audits inspected by the FRC still required improvement, with mixed quality across firms. With calls for new approaches being required and the change to ARGA looming, it is likely there will be significant movement in the audit profession in the coming months and years.
1: Something for us all to reflect on at the end there, Ben, as we wait to see what happens to the audit profession as they face the challenges of different regulator changes, perhaps in the audit processes themselves, and trying to balance the fact that perhaps the public and the government and regulators think something Different about an audit and what they think an audit's all about, to so what the profession understand from the regulations, etc. So all that's left for me now to say is thank you to Tom and Ben, um, for being on the podcast today. We look forward to seeing you next month.
0: RPC Radio.
2: Radio.
1: We hope you will join us again next month when we will be discussing the month's hot topics in the financial services sector. And please do click to subscribe to receive the monthly podcast as soon as it is available. Be sure to also check out other RPC publications at rpc.co.uk forward slash perspectives. Thank you to our guests today, as well as those behind the scenes at RPC who make this podcast possible.